0: So if you have a Bible with you, let's go to Psalm 139. You may already be there. Um, we are going to be looking at the latter half of that psalm and primarily, but we will be alluding to the, the first half of it also. Um, if you were to examine the prayers of many of God's people that are recorded for us in Scripture, you will note that they prayed some pretty dangerous prayers. Now, you and I like, as I said before, we like to pray safe prayers. Everybody loves safe prayers. God bless me and provide for me and give me traveling mercies. And I remember I took the staff one year to a restaurant so I could take on the therminator, You know, Thurman's the big hamburger that's about this, you know, so. And so, you know, here I've got the therminator sitting in front of me and I got wings over here. And it's time to pray for the blessing on the meal, and I just heard God whisper back, not a chance, man, there's there's, there's no way. So we we love safe prayers, but um, here's what I've noticed in those in Scripture is that those who go the farthest with God in their faith, those who go the farthest with God in their faith and who um, are used by God in the greatest way are those who are willing to take the greatest risks in their relationship with Him. And these are the individuals who pray very dangerous prayers. Prayers like we're going to look at today, Search Me, a prayer of David. We're going to look next week at the prayer, Break Me. Nobody likes brokenness, right? But yet yeah, it's a very essential part, an ingredient in our walk in relationship with God. We're going to look at the prayer, God send me. You would read prayers like, God, give us boldness. We know we're being persecuted for our faith. We don't want to shut down our faith. We want to we want to have greater boldness in carrying the gospel to the world around us. And so those kinds of prayers. Now, David himself did some very dangerous things throughout the course of his lifetime. As a teenager and a little shepherd, uh, the, the, we read in Scripture that David took on the lion, that he put a bear in a chokehold, that he took on Goliath and, and uh, with a slingshot. You know, Goliath's out there taunting uh, the, the armies of Israel who are camped out on each side of the valley, and, and Goliath comes out every day for 40 days taunting them. Nobody wants to take him on. They're all afraid. And so David steps out onto the battlefield and he slew Goliath with a slingshot. And so when we come to this prayer, I think this is one of, another one of the dangerous things that David did in his life was to pray a prayer such as we are going to look at today. In fact, this is a dangerous prayer for you to pray. But I want to encourage you to pray this prayer every single day for the next seven days because I think God will start ruminating some things inside of you and, and uh, offloading some things out of your off your life that you need to have offloaded and some healing where healing needs to take place. And so um, let's begin in verse 19. Um, it says, "'If only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now, you might look at that part of David's prayer and think, Well, man, that is pretty, like, that's pretty intense. I've heard, but let me just say this. I've heard you say worse than that. God's probably heard you say worse than that concerning traffic in Columbus, okay? Man, I hate this traffic. I hate these people. Get them out of here, right? So, all David is doing is David has come to this point. He said, God, you know what? You know me. You created me. You know the innermost parts of my being. Where I go, you're there. I can't get away from your presence. And so now he's just getting honest with God, and he's saying, you know what, God? There are these enemies that, who just keep coming against me. They're, they're seeking to take my life. And, and Lord, I'm going to tell you what. I have developed a hatred in my heart for them. And so David just becomes very open and honest in his prayer life with God. And by the way, it's okay for you to be open and honest with God, all right? So God understands. And so David continued praying this heartfelt prayer, but as he's praying this, something begins to shift inside of him. All of a sudden, his prayer takes a totally different direction. You notice what it says in verse 23, "'Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting.'" And this is on your outline. David goes from facing his external enemies to focusing on his inner self. He, in verses 19 through 21, he's, he's talking about his external enemies, but now he's saying, you know what, Lord? I need you to search me. Remember what we talked about for the last 14 weeks? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. It's not the, it's not the enemy out there. It's what's going on inside of me. And so David realized that the greatest enemy were not the assassins who were out them around him, but his greatest enemy was something that was internal. It was his own heart. And so this prayer challenges us in four specific ways. And here's the first one. He says, Lord, search my heart. Why would I pray, God, search my heart? I know my heart. I think I got a pretty good heart. I think you got a pretty good heart. I think we all have pretty good hearts, right? So we would say, my heart's pretty good. Your heart's pretty good. All God's people's heart's pretty good. And uh, so why would we pray, God, search my heart? I mean, I, I, I'm not a bad person. I want to do what's right. I try to do what's right. I, you know, I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't cheat on my wife. I don't do these things. My, I, Lord, I really got a good heart. Why would I need to pray this kind of prayer? In fact, if somebody makes a mess of their life, we would say of that person, well, you know, they, they made a few mistakes in their life, and they made a mess of things, but, you know, he or she, they have such a good heart. I, I can't tell you how many times I've watched a, a mother on, you know, uh, a news channel whose son was just incarcerated for a heinous crime, and say, oh, I just can't believe my son would do that. He, he's just a good boy. He's got such a good heart. Well, if he was such a good boy and had such a good heart, why would he do such a thing? And so the golden rule of our culture is this, and, and we never want to disobey this. The golden rule of our culture is you should always follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Because that is what we believe. I have a good heart. You have a good heart. We all have good hearts. Basically, we're good people. I hate to burst your bubble, but that is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. God who knows us, God who knit us together in our mother's womb, God who sees everything that we do, who knows every motive we've ever had, every word that we've ever spoken, says this about our heart. Jeremiah seventeen nine says, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. We are, listen, our default mode is not a good heart. Our natural default mode is that we are very deceptive. We, we can be very wicked in our hearts. And if you don't believe me that your heart is deceitful, let me have you reflect on just a few things for a moment. Nobody has ever lied to you more than you've lied to yourself. No one has ever betrayed you more than you have betrayed yourself. In fact, if people talk to you like you talk to yourself and the thoughts that roll around in your mind, you would have kicked them out of your life a long time ago. See, our hearts are deceitful, and this is what comes naturally. We don't naturally have good hearts, but deceitful hearts, and we deceive ourselves, we deceive other people, uh, we lie a lot. So here's, you wanted to fill in the blanks. Here's here's how our hearts are deceitful. We lie, we exaggerate, we rationalize, and we cover up. Those are the main ingredients of our hearts. I mean, think about how many times that you lie a day. You say, well, I don't lie. You're lying. In fact, there have been research after research in America. Even a book was written many years ago called The Day That America Told the Truth, talking about how much we as Americans lie. We lie to ourselves all the time. We lie to people because we don't want to hurt their feelings. We lie to people because we don't want to make ourselves look better than we actually do. And we lie to keep ourselves from getting into trouble. Uh, We lie for a lot of reasons. But we lie and we lie a lot because our hearts are naturally deceptive. And we also are very good at exaggerating, right? The most common lies are the ones that we tell ourselves. You know, the ones you... Okay, like I sat down um, to watch the Masters golf tournaments on this week. And so I sat down yesterday and I had a bag of chips. Now, mind you, these weren't like the Lay's potato chips or Kahn's potato chips that I would normally eat. These were, um, they called them vegetable potato chips. And it's amazing because I I thought, well, you know what? I'm only going to eat a few. I'm not going to eat the whole bag. I'll just eat a few. But at least they're good for me, right? So at least they're good for me. So I've got my bag of potato chips and I'm sitting here watching. And before you know it, they're gone. All right, so... I felt bad about the fact that you know I said to myself, "I'm only going to eat a few. I'm not going to eat the whole bag. I've had my whole scenario all set out." But I lied to myself and I exaggerated by saying, "Well, at least they were healthy." I don't know if they're healthy or not. I did not look at the content of the ingredients on the whether or not they're actual vegetables or not. Who knows? Uh, but we we do. We rationalize. We no one likes to face the ugly truth. And that they drink too much or that they uh, think about things that they would be ashamed of if other people could see what they're thinking about. And nobody, you know, wants to face the truth that we laugh at other people's mistakes and we gossip about other people in the name of prayer and and that we can be very harsh and we can be very critical and we can be very opinionated. We don't like to look in the mirror and admit those things about ourselves. And so uh, we we rationalize away I don't have the problem. There's no problem here. I can cope. I can handle it. I can deal with it. It's my business, it's not your business. Don't judge me. You're in the same boat. All right, this is what we do. And then we cover it all up. We're like Adam and Eve. They covered up their shame, they covered up their guilt. They put on all the, you know, these false coverings and we do the same thing. We wear a mask. We cover up. We only let people see what we want them to see because we know that if they actually saw the real us, we would be so full of shame and so full of guilt that we Because why? Because our hearts are deceitful. We do things we know we should not do. So instead of asking God to do something for you, this prayer is about asking God to reveal something to you about yourself. That's why it's a dangerous prayer. What I've discovered in 40-some years of pastoring is that we do not like to face ourselves. We'll lie, we'll cover up, we'll exaggerate, we'll rationalize, we'll justify, we'll do anything we can to keep us from looking in the mirror and actually seeing what we're looking at. And so we have conversations with ourselves. But clearly, if you're going to get at the root of your sin, if you're going to get at the root of your dysfunction, if you're going to get at the root of your destructive coping mechanisms that you have in life, the purpose of our coping mechanism is to feel better about a situation that we don't have much control over. And so if you want to say, well, the key there is feel. We want to feel good. We like feeling good. We don't like to feel bad, we don't like to feel pain, we always want to feel good and so if I'm having difficulty in life, I'm having some dysfunction, I'm having relational problems, I want to feel good. So That is what a coping mechanism is all about. Whatever that is for you is that you want to feel good, better about the situation you can't control. So just replace the word feel with flesh because that's what the Bible does. In Galatians 5, you can either live according to the flesh or you can live according to the spirit. The flesh is all about feeling better about myself. But the result is so much different than living by the spirit, rather than by my feelings and by my emotions. That's why you can feel really horrible about yourself and have sex with somebody you don't even lo- know, hardly know or even like, but you're going to feel something, right? You're going to feel better for a moment. And so we, get, we engage in all kinds of destructive behavior patterns, trying to feel good about ourselves in a situation that we have no or little control over, and so people say, well, but that's just the way I am. And this, this is why you can you know binge watch Netflix for hours on end and get stuck on an app and overeat even though you're on a diet, we do these things because we just want to feel better. watch this, but we never get to the root cause behind why we're doing it. And you may escape your pain for a while through your coping mechanism. But somewhere down the road, it's going to falter. Somewhere down the road, you're going to stop getting the pleasure that you once got from it because it's the law of diminishing return. You know, you do something, you get all kinds of you know, high pleasure feelings, endorphins or, you know, chemical release in your brain and all that's going on. But as you continue to do something, you get less and less return. And so, you know, first, you know, I, I start with marijuana and that's, that's great. That's wonderful for a while, but that just doesn't give it get it for me. And then I move on to something else and I move on to something else and something else to get a bigger high, a, a greater lift. And before long, that that pattern of coping becomes something extremely destructive in your life. This is why we need somebody outside of us who can look into our hearts and say, here's why you're doing what you're doing. I ask people all the time, so why'd you do that? I don't know. You ever ask a teenager why they did something stupid? That's all the that answer you're always going to get. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, I don't know. And I used to, it used to drive me crazy, but then I really thought back over my own life and I thought, you know what? That's exactly what I used to say. I don't know. And really, I didn't know. I just like, I just did it, right? So I just wanted to do it. I wanted, wanted to feel better. And, and here, here's, what, here's where Satan comes in, man. He gives you counterfeit things to make you feel better. Like, for example, if you're having marital conflict, right? So the... What happens in marriage conflict? Well, the wife shuts down emotionally, she'll shut down sexually, and then the husband's all frustrated about that, and so then he starts looking at porn. And then he gets locked into that, and before long, that's not enough, and it's gotta go to bigger and better and greater things. And so this destructive behavior starts taking him down a pathway that ends in death, like not physical death necessarily, but the death of the marriage, the death of the relationship, And this is what Satan does. He sees us getting locked into a coping mechanism. So he comes along and he offers you a counterfeit measure to feel better about yourself. Because this is something beyond your control. I've I've tried to do things to help my wife along, and I thought, and she just, you know, it's just getting worse. The the relationship's getting worse, and we're more and more separated than we've ever been, even though I'm trying really hard at the marriage, yada, yada, yada. And so Satan's whole plan for humanity is to prevent what God says is good and make it bad. And so he offers you counterfeit. God wants to offer you peace that surpasses all human understanding. God wants to offer you drinking from a living well that once you drink from it, you'll never thirst again. So he just comes in and says, man, here's something for you. And one of the reasons why we so hesitate in praying this prayer, Lord, search me, search my heart, is because we equate it with something negative. For example, let's say you get out here on the highway tomorrow morning, you're heading to work, and the police officer pulls you over and says, uh, You know, you're, you're you, obviously you weren't speeding, you're pulled over, and he says, Well, I'm sorry I didn't pull you over speeding, but I got suspicion that you're carrying something in your car that's illegal. We need to search your vehicle. Right, and all of a sudden your heart, you know, starts palpitating, and, you know, you start breaking out in sweat. You have Even though in your heart you may know there ain't nothing in your car, the fact that these police officers are actually searching your car, and your mind might go through, well, what if somebody planted something in my car who doesn't like me, and now they're going to find it, and I'm going to get in, you know, in trouble, and I'm going to go to jail, and I'm going to be maybe in prison. I'm, and your mind starts running through this whole scenario, and so you equate searching with something negative, or you go to the airport and the TSA guy, I pulls you out of the line and says, hmm, it's alright, we gotta search all of your luggage. And you're thinking to yourself, Oh my goodness, what did I leave in there? What if I had what if I left my gun in there? I, you know, I've got a concealed weapon permit, but it does, I can't carry it on the plane. What if I left that in there? And people have done that, you know, un- mistakenly. And so you know, they find it. Now I'm gonna be in trouble. See, the point is that when when we are being searched. We equate that with something negative. I'm going to be punished, uh, you know. And so when we think, oh, God, I don't want God to search my heart because if if I have him search my heart, all that stuff comes to the surface, then he's just going to like punish me for everything that I've done wrong. No, 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 no. Jesus took your punishment on the cross as a follower of Christ. What God wants to do is not bring punishment. He wants to bring healing in your life. He wants to alleviate you from those coping mechanisms that are absolutely destroying your life, whether you acknowledge it or not. And even in our self-destructive behavioral patterns, we, our heart is so deceptive, we convince ourselves it's really not that bad. Until it's too late. James pictured it like this. It's like Satan sets a snare. He baits it with what he knows is enticing to you. You take the bait, and he ensnares you, and the result is death. Sin always results in death. It can be the death of your conscience. It can be the death of a relationship. It can be the death of your body. There are a lot of ways it can happen. So we often don't associate search me with was something positive? I mean, there's one situation. It, you know, um, maybe you're like me. I was I was so full of anger and so full of resentment towards my dad, I never realized how much that was impacting my life and how it was driving what I was doing and my coping mechanisms that were destructive at best and where that was taking me and where I might end up if I remained on that pathway until I really got serious about praying this prayer, God, I need you to search me. I need to know what the root cause of this is. I need to know why I am doing what I am doing. I don't want to spend the rest of my life self-medicating in unhealthy ways. And this is what God's challenging us with. That's why it's a dangerous prayer. Because God's gonna show you things that are not pure, that are not right, that should not be there. But but that, that thing you're nursing may lead you down the road a little further, but at some point it's gonna take you to a place where it doesn't work anymore. But if you let God search you, it can lead you down another pathway that might take that will take you to levels of intimacy with your Heavenly Father that you never thought possible. As deceptive as our hearts are, I know this, when you're doing things that you're ashamed of and you know you're ashamed of it and you know that God knows it even though nobody else may know it, it begins to build a wedge between you and your Heavenly Father. And it's not long before you're way over here and He's all the way over here. God hasn't really moved. You're the only one who's moved. And so the danger of the prayer is, God, search me. But you better be prepared for what the Holy Spirit may bring to the surface. But it is essential to experiencing the healing that you need in your soul. Here's the second thing he says. Now, Lord, reveal to me my fears. What are my fears I'm not talking about external fears like, you know, your fear of snakes or spiders or whatever it is for you that you're afraid of. I'm talking about something that's that is much deeper than that. I'm talking about um, what is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that keeps ricocheting around in your mind and you refu- it just refuses to be quieted and it just really causes your heart to race and, and maybe you break out into sweat. Things like losing your job or things like not getting married or being married to the, the wrong person or in a bad marriage or maybe a health failure. Your savings has been drained because you've lost your job and COVID set you out you know, of work. Or maybe, Lord, I, I don't know. Here's a big fear. Lord, I don't know if I can live without my coping mechanism. That fear alone keeps more people from asking God to search them because they really don't want to deal with what's going on in their life because when a surgeon cuts you, it hurts. There's pain after surgery. And when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and cuts you to get to the root issue in your life, it is a painful process and so people fear that pain and they fear living life without their coping mechanism because they can't imagine life any other way. So they won't pray it and we will just rationalize and justify it in our lives and just continue on down the road and say, well, you know, in the end, I'll be in heaven and I'll be good anyways. That was never God's plan for your life just to get to your heaven by the way. That's fringe benefit. God's plan, he says, his, his will for you is to conform you to the image of Jesus while you're in this lifetime, so the surgeon with the scalpel, the Holy Spirit wants to do a work in your life and my life, and He wants to, He knows exactly where to cut. He knows where my coping mechanisms are every time I want to feel good when I'm sad or when I'm hurt or when I'm feeling anxious and when I'm feeling whatever it is that I'm feeling and I want to feel better and I turn to my coping mechanism and I rationalize it in my mind That's not that harmful, it's nobody's business and it's not going to end in anything bad and on and on we go. Although we don't know exactly what fears were running through David's mind, it is clear that he was troubled about his safety and perhaps his future. That's That's why he's asking God to search his heart. And then he says, test me, God, and know my anxious thoughts. He wanted to share his worst fears with God, to face them and give them a name, to trust that God was bigger than any fear that David could dream up or come up with. Are you willing to pray, Lord? Reveal to me what holds my mind hostage. And here's why it's important. God will show you that what you fear the most reveals where you trust God the least. Chew on that a minute. Whatever you fear the most is the Spirit simply revealing to you where you're trusting God the least. Because if I'm trusting in an omnipotent, all-powerful God who can speak things into existence, and that fear is halting me dead in my tracks, that is not a fear that God's given me. And it's not a place I'm trusting him. And so the fears I wrestle with that keep me awake at night are... things that I'm I'm just not trusting God to handle, and I'm holding on to them, and I'm ruminating over them, which means I'm meditating on them, right? So meditation is like you're ruminating on something over and over again, and so the fears get bigger, and then they they get more grandiose, and then then we start our minds start taking us all kinds of directions of things that may never, ever happen, but in our minds it could happen, and so the fears begin to escalate and grow in our minds, and so we try to solve our own problems, we try to take control over our own lives and we try to plan for every contingency that could possibly happen. Listen, there's no shame in having fear. We all have fears. And when COVID-19 first hit and and things were really getting bad, you know, I started like, the, it's just like a spiritual warfare in my mind and my heart at night when, you know, the, the Satan's just hammering me. and says, well, you know, uh, this could really be devastating. This could close your church. You're 62 years old. What are you going to do for a job? Who wants, to, who wants to hire you at that age? And you ain't going to have no church to go to and the other churches are going to be closing. And you don't know. And so you, you can let that stuff run wild all you want, But then I have to say, I have to reel it in. Remember, I take every thought captive and obedience to Christ, and I say, but you don't understand, Satan. Um, I don't have to worry about where I'm going to live or what I'm going to feed myself with or what I'm going to drive because my Father knows that I have need of all these things, and he's always taking care of me. He will always take care of me. So therefore, I will not fear what I do not know. I'm not going to borrow into tomorrow because today's got enough worries of its own. By the way, that's Jesus teaching, right? Matthew chapter 6. Take the word of God. Speak truth to your enemy. It is written. That's how you put down Satan. The truth is you and I will always feel inadequate and weak. I know our culture doesn't celebrate, it celebrates strength and it condemns weakness, but God says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that is in our greatest moments of weakness that God's power begins to manifest itself in greater ways. So, your pathway, and I think I put this on your outline, your pathway to your greatest potential is often straight through your greatest fear. Whatever that is for you, faith will propel you forward. In fact, God, what God wants for you may be on the other side of what you fear the most. That's why the Apostle Paul told his protege Timothy, who is, you know, he says, "I want you to cling to your faith." He says in 2 Timothy, he says, "God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but power, love, and self-discipline." So pray and step into your fear. Let God propel you forward by faith. Faith doesn't mean you don't get afraid. Faith simply means you don't let your fears stop you. Everybody has fears. But you can't let it stop you, and you cannot let your fears control your life. That's where the rubber meets the road. Maybe it's for you. It's a fear of failure. Maybe you have a fear of being inadequate in some way. Maybe it's your fears letting people down. Don't let your fear keep you. From doing what is right. So a part of our prayer is that, Lord, I want you to search my heart. I want you to reveal any fears that are inside of me that are governing and controlling my life and my emotions. Because watch this, what happens when I become fearful? I run to my coping mechanism that makes me feel better about the situation I feel like I have no control over. And if you let your mind run wild and those fears begin to to grow and, and to become larger than life, now all of a sudden, you are going after more than one coping mechanism. You're going after multiple coping mechanisms just to get through the day. That's not the way God's designed us to live. Here's the third thing he says. Now, Lord, I want you to uncover, I want you to uncover my sins, David, a man after God's own heart, was devoted to God's will. He worshiped God passionately. He gave extravagantly. He led courageously, and yet he still made some mistakes, right? So he prays, Lord, if there's any offensive way in me, in other words, Lord, show me what I, if I'm doing anything that is offensive and that is hurtful to your heart, I want you to reveal that to me. Most of us have become masters at accusing other people of their sins while we excuse our own. And the reason I know that is because Jesus talked about it. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, he says to us, Why are you so busy pulling the speck of sawdust out of your brother's eye when you've got a plank in your own? Isn't it true that we, we become master deceivers, and the reason Jesus challenges us, because he knows our default mode, is that when somebody else in your life sins, you become judge and jury, but when you sin, you become the greatest defense attorney ever, right, right? I know this in my own life. I don't have to travel very far. If I just go to the grocery store and I'm in a hurry and I'm picking up items and I get in the line that says 10 items or less, what's the very first thing I do? Everybody who's in front of me, I act as judge and jury. I count every single item in their cart and if they're exceeding the 10 item limit, in my mind, we're having a very bad conversation and I'm giving them the death stare. But now if I happen to get up there and notice that I have 11 items instead of 10 items, I become the best defense attorney ever because I say, because I know in my mind, somebody else behind me is counting the items in my cart, and I will turn around and say, well, I'll have you know the reason why there are 11 items instead of 10 items is because I bought Diet Coke and caffeine-free Diet Coke, so that only counts as one item. <laughs> We're masters at this, aren't we? And this is why Jesus confronts us, because this is what we do with our sin, is that we, we cover it up, we, we become defense attorneys on our behalf. Now, if I see your sin, man, I'm all over you, okay? I, I see it, I can point it out, I can call it out, I can do all those kinds of things. But when it comes to my own, well, that is a different story. So if you sin, I become a judge and jury, but if I sin, I become the great defense attorney. So how do you hear from God about the offensive way That is in you. Let me give you four things real quick. Number one is you consider what the Holy Spirit says to you. Now, if you're asking the Holy Spirit of God to search you, to reveal your fears, to uncover your sins, he will gladly oblige. Because he realized what sin does to you. He realized how it cuts you off, how it cuts you up, how your fears can be the driving force of your life rather than faith how it drives a wedge between you and your Heavenly Father. So here's the beautiful thing. God, the Father, and Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are all at different places called our Counselor. Our Counselor. There are always secret, hidden reasons... your self-destructive behavior, and you need a counselor to dig into your heart and to identify those things. Now, the beautiful thing about Jesus is he is called in Isaiah the wonderful counselor, the wonderful counselor. He can search down into your heart and help you identify the hidden reasons behind your dysfunction as only he can do. Now, If you look closely at Psalm 139, you're going to notice that David, before he gets to this segment of his prayer, that he, in the very first half, all the way from verses 1 up to 18, that he's been focusing on the attributes of God. If you look in the very first four verses, he says, "'Lord, you you searched me. You're familiar with all my ways.'" such knowledge, verse 6, is too wonderful me. He's talking about God's omniscience, that God knows everything. There's nothing about you that God does not know. There's nothing that escapes His knowledge. There's nothing you can do in secret or in the darkness that God does not already know, that is not already aware of. Why? Because in verses 7 through 10, He says, man, no matter where I go, no matter where I run, you are there. He speaks of God's omnipresence. And so God is everywhere. There's nowhere I can go that God is not. And then in verses verses um, 13 through 18, he talks about God's omnipotence, that God is all-powerful, that He is the creator. He created me in the womb of my mother, and He gave me the attributes that I have, and He he numbered my days. And so, therefore, God, who is this all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God, is my wonderful counselor. Why is that so encouraging to me because since God is omnipresent, that means no matter what I've done that I'm so ashamed of that I I pray that no one would ever find out, ever know about, not even God of himself, if that were possible, he's also omniscient and so he knows, he's all-knowing, he knows the reason, the motive behind everything that I do, but he's omnipotent, which means he has, have my wonderful counselor. He has the power to set me free from those unhealthy issues in my life as he roots out the cause and brings healing where there has been damage, hurt, bitterness, trauma, jealousy, envy, whatever it is that's driving your life. That's the wonderful counselor I have. Not to judge me, not to condemn me. He judged me and condemned me on a, on the cross at Calvary through Jesus, but to be my doctor, to be my healer, so that I can offload these unhealthy coping mechanisms and I can live a life that is totally different than with them. That's a wonderful counselor. I know some of you here today, you, you, you're thinking, well, you know, I, I really don't know why I'm not happy. I, I've tried to figure it out I, all of my life. I've just not felt happy. I don't know why I'm depressed. I don't know why I cannot get out of this prison of bitterness. I don't know why I can't break this habit. I, I just don't understand how I can put together a budget every year in my New Year's resolution by February. I've already blown it you know, out, out of the water. I, I just don't understand. I don't know why. I know that. I understand that. But your wonderful counselor knows. And he wants to help you find that out. Not to pay you back, but to bring you back into intimacy. To help you offload those things that you're doing in your life that are totally unhealthy and unhelpful in the long run. That's the counselor that we have. Secondly, you want to consider what others have told you about yourself. If there is an area in your life, your habits, your relationships, or actions that people that know you well and love you have pointed these things out to you over and over again, probably a good indication there's a problem. Remember what I said last week? You do not know what it's like living on the other side of you, but everybody around you does. So if you have somebody who keeps saying, you know what, you're spending so much time on your phone, you're ignoring your family, you probably ought to pick up on that or you're spending so much time you know, playing video games that you're ignoring your wife, or you're spending so much time being emotionally disengaged when you're home. I know, honey, you're here, but you're not here even when you're here. You're just so emotionally disengaged from the family. If somebody keeps telling you that over and over again, it is probably a good indication that God's speaking through them to you. And he's uncovering an area of sin that he wants to deal with Proverbs twelve fifteen says the way of fools seem right to them but the wise listen to advice and so maybe it's just time to pause and to listen and to consider what they are saying to you number three consider what you rationalize yeah but I know this may not be right but you know it's not that big of a deal it's just how I deal with things and you know if there's something in your life that's wrong but you know I. I I just continue to, you know, just, just deal with it my own way. I, and, you know, they might be warning signals from God. I get that. I understand that. But you know what? I, I'm, I'm doing just fine. You're probably rationalizing something, right? Somebody has tied you. Somebody has opened up a wound in you that needs to be healed, but it cannot heal because you will not allow it to be healed. And so those are considerations. Uh, here's the last one is you consider how you defend yourself. It's not a big deal. I can handle this. I'm not hurting anyone. It's my life. You can't judge me. I don't have a problem. I'm fine. You just keep to your business and I'll keep to mine. So you start rationalizing. You defend yourself. We all need God's help to see the sin that we cannot see. And so God does it through his Holy Spirit. He does it through other people. He does it through the rationalizations that we're making, the defense mechanisms we're setting up. There's nothing wrong with me looking at porn. Everybody does it. Besides, I could do much worse. I'm not hurting anyone. At least I'm not divorcing my wife. Or I don't have a temper problem. I yell at you because of what you do. You just make me so mad. And my drinking is not a problem. I just have a few beers to help me unwind. It's not like I'm chugging, you know, a fifth of vodka or whiskey or, or bourbon and I'm not gossiping. I'm just, I can't help but people tell me all this stuff. I have to pass it on so other people can be praying for them, you know. I don't have a gambling problem. It's, I, I can stop anytime I want. It's just like entertainment to me. I don't have a selfish bone in my body. I just love nice things. Amen. Yeah. Let me tell you about David. The man after God's own heart. There was a time in his life where he rationalized some stuff. Should have been out on the battlefield, but instead he stayed home. He probably rationalized, you know what, I've been doing war for a long time, many years. I'm tired. I, I really don't want to go back out on the battlefield. I think I'm going to sit this one out. And so he did. He sat that one out and he got up on his rooftop one night looking at the stars and he noticed on the rooftop over from him there was a woman named Bathsheba who was bathing. She was naked. She saw, he saw her body. Now this woman... Her, Her father was one of David's mighty warriors. And so he's probably furthered his rationalization. Well, you know, I've been kind of lonely lately. I just really need to talk through some things. I think Bathsheba might be a good person to talk to. We're just going to talk, nothing else. So he sent for Bathsheba. You know the end of the story. He brings her into his chambers. They end up sleeping together. She has a child out of wedlock. And then David, when he finds out about it, he sets Uriah out on the front lines, has him basically murdered to keep this thing a secret. And he hid it For a year, for a year, David said nothing about this. He covered it up. He rationalized it. He justified it. But if you read Psalm 37, while he was doing all these things, he says, I was in a deep, dark depression. My bones were like breaking away. My heart, my gut, everything about me was just like in turmoil until Nathan, the prophet, had the, the audacity to confront David and say, David, here's a story about a man who took advantage of somebody. And David said, well, that, that rascal, well, let's put him to death. And he said, David, you are the man. And then all of a sudden, God hit him like a ton of bricks. And he tore away the veil. And David's heart was exposed. His sin was before everybody. Because this sin was not only affecting him, it was not only affecting Bathsheba, it was affecting her family, it was infecting the entire kingdom. Rationalization, covering up, justifying is a very powerful force. Here's what I have found. I have found that the more convinced I am that I am right about something, the more likely it is that I'm dead wrong. So if you find yourself in this all defensive mode because somebody's pointing something out to you about yourself, you may want to stop, pause, listen, because it might be the voice of God speaking deep into your heart. Here's the last one. He says, Lord, lead me in your ways. Lead me in your ways. Show me what I don't like about myself. Show me what needs to be changed. Now lead me in the way everlasting. Because God wants to direct us. He wants to guide us. Listen, your, de- your deepest need becomes a gift when it moves you to depend upon God. And why do I need this? Because Proverbs 3 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Remember that heart that's deceitful, that's wicked? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not trust in Greg, not trust in your mama or daddy, not trust in your spouse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. You want to lean on God's understanding, and he will make your paths straight. He will lead you in the way of everlasting. He will smooth out the path in front of you, because here's what God knows. God knows that sin is extremely venomous. God knows that the result of sin, all through the Bible, the result of sin is always death. And it's always the death of your conscience. It is the death of your motivation. It is the death of your relationships. It is the death of so, so many things. But we have a tendency in our minds, in our hearts, to rationalize that sin just isn't that bad. It's like picking up a rubber snake as opposed to picking up a copperhead. I know the difference. My dad is deathly afraid of snakes. I work construction. We worked on the same job. And so one day we were in the trailer at lunchtime. I put a rubber snake in my dad's desk lap drawer. And I said, you know, My dad's the superintendent of the job. I said, Hey Dad, can you get me a pen out of there? I need to mark something on these blueprints. He opens it up, sees that rubber snake, and then he bolts out of the trailer. Which now that I think about it wasn't a wise thing to do because you know he is the boss and I, I did kind of embarrass him over that. But then, uh, that afternoon, I'm I'm down in one of the pipe galleys, because I was a pipe fitter, and I'm down in the pipe galley. I grab blueprints, and this was in New York, I grab blueprints, and when I swept them away, there laid a copperhead. Let me tell you, there's a difference in your heart with a rubber snake in your hand as opposed to seeing eye to eye with a copperhead in front of you. This is what God wants us to see, is that sin is so, so destructive. It is so, so venomous. It is not something that we want to play with because it, will set, it always sets your feet on a path. Every path has a destination. God wants you to allow Him to set your feet on the proper pathways that lead to the best destination for your life possible. That's what He wants to do. So let me challenge you over the next seven days to pray this prayer and to say, God, search my heart, reveal my fears, uncover my sin, and lead me in your ways that I might be healed and delivered from the sin that has so ensnared me and that is destroying me. Seven days praying this prayer. Well, last thing, share that with somebody. If you've got an area of your life you're struggling, you don't need to tra- travel that pathway alone. See, James says in James 5, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman will avail much. And he goes on to say, if you confess your sins to one another, then the Lord brings healing. See, we want to conceal sin. We don't want to acknowledge, we don't want, okay, I'll acknowledge it before God. I'm not sharing that with anybody else, but listen, there are times in your life where you need somebody else to help you take that journey, and as long as you conceal your sin, as long as you conceal what it is that God's doing in your heart, God can't heal what you're willing to conceal, but if you're willing to put it out there and ask somebody to walk with you through this and help you through this, listen, I've done this a hundred times, with counselors, with um, people who were, you know, my mentors, people who I trust, telling them things about myself that I'll be fully ashamed if anybody knew, but I knew I needed somebody to help me down the right pathway. And if you will take that step, it is amazing. The power of God gets released in your life and you can experience God's healing, which is what he ultimately wants for you. This is a dangerous prayer. But it's the most beneficial prayer that you'll ever pray. Let's bow our heads to you, Holy Spirit. We ask you this morning um, to do a work in us. In fact, I believe that you're doing something special in somebody's life today, whether here or online. God, you are going to lead them. In a way that takes them out of bondage and brings them into the life that you have planned for them, God, we thank you that that you and that they will have the the courage to ask for help. God, I I pray they'll have that courage to seek someone out, someone they love, someone that trusts them, someone that has you know their best interest in mind, that has will benefit in no way by not sharing the truth or speaking the truth. God, we thank you that you bring those kinds of people into our lives. I pray that you will give them the courage to pray all week long. Lord, search me. Search me, oh God. Reveal my fears and cover my sins. Lead me, God, in your ways. And they will trust you to reveal whatever is in them that you desire to change. I pray for the tearing down of strongholds. I pray for the obliteration of coping mechanisms that are keeping your people all wrapped up in guilt and shame and fear and anxiety and all those things, Father, that those unhealthy coping mechanisms eventually revert back to. Father, you are more powerful than anything we face. God, your searching eyes can go so deep. I know that your Holy Spirit can uncover the truth, can root out the hurt, the pain, the trauma that needs to be healed instantaneously and that that Holy Spirit can heal that instantaneously. And I pray that, God, for those who are in need of I pray that, Father, we will make this prayer just a part of our lives, that, Lord, will not let anything slip in by a side door that could ultimately take us out, take us out of our marriage, take us out of our relationship, take our bodies out, and what, our minds, our hearts that, that could create any kind of separation between us because, Lord, the loss of fellowship, Lord, just those things that Satan seeks to do in our hearts and our lives. God, I pray that that would be exposed by the light of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, that we would we would pray this prayer. We would allow you to be our physician, to heal us, to deliver us into the way everlasting. And with your heads bowed, for some of you, the floodgate may open up now and you are overwhelmed. And maybe for the first time in your life, you realize and recognize that you have sinned. How do we know when we do something wrong? God has given us, us this inner device called our conscience. And it says, this is right and this is wrong. And so we try to do better. We try to work harder and we think, well, maybe I can just be good enough for God because after all, I have a good heart. The fact is you will on your own never be good enough. We're all sinners in need of a savior. This is where Jesus steps in. Jesus hung out with people like us who are messed up. And for some of you, the spirit is prompting your need for Christ and his forgiveness and his cleansing right here, right now. And you need his grace and you can sense that in your heart. What do you need to do? You simply turn away from your sin and say, I want to walk away from my sin and I want to walk towards Jesus. I want to surrender my heart and my life to him. And Lord Jesus, I ask you right here, right now to save me and to be first in my life, be Lord of my life, to overtake my life. I surrender it all. I lay my body on the altar as a living sacrifice to you. And by faith, I give you my life from this day forward to be both Savior and Lord over me. Father, I pray for those who have voiced that prayer to you. May now your Holy Spirit give witness, give testimony to their spirit that they have in fact become a child of God. And we celebrate that. May this be the first day of a new beginning, a new life, a new journey, a new destiny. In the mighty name of Jesus, we thank you and praise you. And God's people said, amen. Let's stand together as we close.